Welcome to Midcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 407, recorded on Sunday, the 5th of March, 2023. The sun is up, and I'm Joe. I think I'm awake, and I'm Moss. Driving my life away, I'm Bill. First up in the news, Mint Monthly News. February Ubuntu flavors agree to stop using Flatpak. Linux desktop powers consider uniting for an app store. Ubuntu devs working on mini installer. Mesa 23 released. Mozilla narks on Android apps. Fedora caught thinking. Linux supports Apple chips. Only Office integrates. Falcon accelerates. In security and privacy, LastPass devs' accounts get breached. NSA wants to help. Then, in our wanderings, we all do crazy things for about two weeks. I wish. And in our innards section, we're going to be talking about the applications on Android that we use the most. Or that we couldn't live without. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. First up in the news, Mint Monthly News, February 2023. In preparation for Linux Mint 21.2, the changes below were implemented. And this is from Londoner, and it's from the Mint blog. Nemo 5.8 will feature multi-threaded thumbnails instead of generating each thumbnail one by one. Nemo will generate multiple thumbnails in parallel. This uses more CPU, but it results in loading directory content faster, especially for directories which contain a large amount of media files. CJS 5.8, the Cinnamon JavaScript interpreter, will be rebased on GJS 1.74 and make use of SpiderMonkey 102. The current version of CJS uses SpiderMonkey 78, XDG. Desktop portal implementations are being written for Cinnamon, Mate, and XFCE. This will provide better compatibility between desktop environments on non-native applications such as Flatpaks or LibAdWeta apps, though these are usually written only for GNOME anyway. Among other things, this will make it possible for these apps to take screenshots or to support dark mode. Warpinator is designed to let people see each other and share files on the local network as easily as possible and without setup, although access to... The local network itself should be monitored and restricted in the first place. Once you're connected to it, you can see and interact with other Warpinator instances. The SUSE security team recently performed a review of the code base and highlighted some concerns. Discussions followed and decisions were taken to harden security in Warpinator. Security bugs were fixed to prevent files potentially being written outside the download directory in the case of a malicious remote copy of Warpinator. Setting a group code became a requirement for the application to remain open indefinitely or to be started automatically after login. Only computers which share the same group code see each other and their communication is encrypted. This was done to prevent a malicious copy of Warpinator from pretending to be someone else on the network, 
and initiate transfers, especially in cases where the target's instance is set to automatically accept incoming requests. People who want to casually share files now and then would communicate first, agree on timing and what's being shared. They'd launch their instances around the same time and expect what they agreed on. In this scenario, the lack of setup requirement is key and there is no significant need for a group code. In preparation for future potential bugs or security issues, changes are currently being implemented to completely isolate Warpinator from the file system and make it technically unable to write anywhere other than the incoming folder. Warpinator is used in many different ways and different environments, whether it's in an office with a secure network and a multitude of computers which trust each other and are constantly open to transfers, or on a public Wi-Fi between two friends' laptops, or even as we recently mentioned, just you sending files to yourself from to a smartphone, a Steam Deck, or another box. We want Warpinator to work for everyone to be as secure as possible in environments where it's set up to be secure with a group, code, auto-start, auto-accepting requests, etc., and to require no configuration in use case where users themselves communicate first and don't rely on the network to trust each other's. Server upgrades. We've been upgrading some of the servers. This caused a little bit of downtime in the past few days on the blog and on forums in particular. We'd like to apologize for the inconvenience. And that's a quote. Okay. And that seems to be it for there, unless you guys got anything to say. Me like mint. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I tried Warpinator once. I thought maybe it would be a usable alternative to SFTP on uh, over WireGuard, but I couldn't get used to the well, workflow. I transferred some files to my wife's computer, and she had a little trouble getting it started, but after we got it set up, it went smoothly, and we could probably use it more easily the next time. Yeah, I, I've turned Warpinator on once or twice and tested it. That's yeah. about it. I don't have a daily use for it. Usually when it's in the news, I'll try it and see. And it's fine, uh, but it, it when you get used to a certain workflow, it's just kind of tough to change over to something completely different, you know. Mm. Anyway, I'll, I'll take this next one if you don't mind. I don't. Ubuntu flavors agree to stop using Flatpak. Well, agree. That's debatable. Uh, from OMG Ubuntu by Londoner, Flatpak will no longer be available out of the box in any of Ubuntu's official flavors. In a surprise move, Ubuntu developers have agreed to stop shipping Flatpak, pre-installed Flatpak apps, or any plugins needed to install Flatpak apps through a GUI software tool in the default package no. set across all eight of Ubuntu's official flavors as of the upcoming Ubuntu 23.04 release. Now, um, you know, they make it sound like a cordial agreement among friends here, right. but that, that's not exactly what It absolutely what was not. <laughs> Ubuntu looked at all their flavors and said, either implement this change or you will no longer be official flavors. Yeah. I'll go on and read this, and then we'll we'll have our quite lengthy commentary. Mm. <laughs> um, 
Ubuntu says the decisions will uh, the decision will improve the out of the box Ubuntu experience for new users by making it clearer about what an Ubuntu experience is. They reason someone using a flavor offering Flatpak might assume the tech re receives the same level of support, bug fixes, and development attention as repo and snap apps do from Ubuntu's community of developers or Canonical themselves, which is not the case. As far as Ubuntu is concerned, only Deb and Snap Package uh, software is intrinsic to the Ubuntu experience, and that experience now needs to be offered everywhere. Flavor leads apparently agree. Now we have apparently in parentheses here, and have all agreed to mirror regular Ubuntu by not offering Flatpak features in their default install for future releases. Do keep in mind that not installed by default is not the same as not available to install at all. To this end, Flatpak continues to be available in the Ubuntu repos. The users of Ubuntu flavors are free to install Flatpak and any related packages in their system manually as they want anytime they like. Additionally, Flatpak will not be uninstalled or removed from when user, when user makes the upgrade to Ubuntu 23.04 from the version where Flatpak is already present. My thoughts, says Joey Snedden, this is a controversial agreement. I know some will argue I'm making it a controversial, I will be making it controversial by covering, but c'est la vie. La vie. <laughs> this, this site is banned from our Linux, and I can guarantee they'll be voicing opinions on it. Thing is, while I can understand regular Ubuntu not wanting to ship Flatpak out of the box flavors, aren't Flatpak out of the box flavors, aren't they? By their nature, they by their nature they're to sur uh, surface alternatives to the Ubuntu vanilla experience. To add the argument, plug gaps cater to others' needs. Flatpak seems to be like a pretty compelling one. Ubuntu asking its flavors to stop using something because it doesn't, it doesn't is hard. It doesn't is a head scratcher. I'm not good at reading people's quotes, apparently. Uh, flavors regularly use the things Ubuntu doesn't. Things you could argue are more intrinsic to an Ubuntu experience, like installers, login managers, icon themes, etc. Why single out Flatpak? It's not like Flatpak is an obscure library in universe with 0.25 developers and uh, an infrequent commit history. Flatpak is robust, actively developed, and well-maintained. And spoiler, it's also not going anywhere. Now, I don't care which side of Flatpak versus Snapspence you get your posterior splinters from. I'm a massive advocate of use what works for you. Snap's great. App images, cool. Nix, have at it. PPAs, only you. Only you do you, babe. But effectively, blanket banning Flatpak by making this change and not underpinning it with any sort of technical reason why it's necessary seems off. Ubuntu is drawing an ideological line in the sand and no one has asked it to make. 
How to re-enable Flatpak support, contributed by Londoner. For all flavors, sudo apt install Flatpak. For Ubuntu, sudo apt install GNOME software plugin Flatpak. For Kubuntu, sudo apt install Plasma Discover uh, backend Flatpak. For all flavors, Flatpak add, uh, remote add uh, double tack if not exists Flathub and then uh, flathub.org slash repo slash flathub dot flatpack repo all in one line. This is all in the show notes. Look. Well, <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Ha- has Talk- Canonical told its flavor people to stop to to stop using uh, Calamaris installer? Have they said, don't use this thing, don't use that thing? No, they say, oh, we got to get everyone on Snap. Right, but... No, and and where is the outcry? The same outcry that we heard when when Mint blocked Snap because Ubuntu was going IPO. Mint blocked Snap. Canonical needs to get the business in line, uh, get the IPO ready, and they can get more money if they are providing a unitary experience. Well, I mint, mean mint blocked snap but and made only it, in only in the way that you had to go in and change a config file to be able to install snap. You so had to be at least five percent technical to get past that hurdle. Oh yeah. You when they first when they first put in the block, yeah. I, I don't know if it's the same way now, but I don't yeah. know. Yeah, you did have to do a little bit of research, and you did have to go change a config file. So, I mean, that, that was a technical block. That wasn't blocking you from the... What what Canonical do... And frankly, I'm surprised it hasn't happened sooner. I'm surprised it hasn't been in place since the get-go. I mean, I'm not agreeing with it, but on the other hand, I can understand why it was done. I mean, if you're going to call yourself... If you're literally going to just twist the word around, the word Ubuntu around, and call yourself something based on that word um, <laughs> with other letters... I mean, I would expect Zubuntu. Right, right. No, Ubuntu has the right to say what is and isn't an official flavor and what makes an official flavor. What is bothering is that they're limiting the official flavors that they already have by saying if you include Flatpak, you're no longer an official flavor. But I can see where they're coming from, where, where where they outline that when it comes out of the box with this, it is in some way understood or or people might get the idea that the these flat packs or the the packages that come pre-installed are officially supported by canonical because keep in mind right. ubuntu is a is a uh, commercial product right that is offered out in the commercial world and you know that that has li- different connotations that goes along with it than uh right, something but- that the whole point with Mint blocking Snaps in the way that they did was that if they didn't block Snaps, then Snaps would install whether you wanted them or, to or not. And you couldn't pick between installing the Deb or the Snap. It just automatically, if there was a Snap, would install that. That's a good point. Because if you had tried to uh, install Firefox around about that same time, or, or Chromium, I think that might have been before the Firefox went to Snap. Uh, but if you didn't try to install Chromium, you would have ended up with the... With the snap of it, forced and you upon wouldn't you. even know that there wasn't a, a deb version of it in use anymore. They but, would just uh, install the snap point. and not even yeah. tell you. Do do people need to know if if you're not technical well, enough to go looking for these things? If the flat pack installed automatically, would you know? 
I would. You would. You Moss would. would. I would. But, I mean, we're we're. I don't know if we are uh, the average user of these desktops. Yeah, I'd say, or oh, not. good, it's installing the flat pack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I, I I honestly have not made up my mind because I've had problems with both of these formats. Neither well, one I've of had, them is completely well, fixing we, the we, problem. We've all had problems with basically every type of installed application yeah. i'm sure uh snaps flat packs devs app images you name it docker images we've had problems with them but yeah i understand I, the concept of trying to make something that's universal but deb was pretty universal there for a while uh, as long as yeah. you were using a, a debian but yeah based yeah well let's continue the discussion with this next article Linux desktop powers consider uniting for an app store. This is from ZDNet through Londoner. Good luck. One reason why there are so many Linux desktops is there's an endless degree, endless, bleh, I'm doing it now, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> One reason why there are so many Linux desktops is that there's an endless disagreement on what makes the best desktop. Now GNOME and KDE are exploring the idea of uniting using Flatpak to create a Linux desktop app store. For most people who just want a desktop and its applications to just work, thank you very much. The hundreds of different Linux desktops and dozens of ways to accomplish similar goals are more annoying than enticing. One such problem is how you can find, install, and be certain any given program will work on your desktop. Now leaders from the GNOME Foundation and the KDE Foundation are considering solving that by building an app store on top of Flatpak, a universal Linux software deployment and package management program. The idea of replacing traditional but not very friendly ways of delivering Linux desktop apps, such as Deb and RPM package management systems, has been around for a while. Besides being easier to use, Flatpak and its rivals such as AppImage and Snaps can also run on any Linux distribution. All the programs do this by containerizing applications with all their necessary libraries and associated files. This isn't the first time such an idea has been tried. For example, Linspire, originally Lindos, pioneered the click-and-run app store in the mid-2000s. More recently, Elementary OS has been experimenting with a pay-what-you-can app store, but because it is specific to a handful or a single Linux distro, it was never that attractive to users or developers. Now, as laid out in formal... Now, as laid out in former Google Chairman Eric Schmidt's plain text group, the proposal is to, quote, promote diversity and sustainability in the Linux desktop community by adding payments, donations, and subscriptions to the Flathub App Store. Behind this idea are several Linux desktop leaders, such as GNOME President Robert McQueen, former GNOME Executive Director and Debian Project Leader Neil McGovern, and KDE President Alex Paul. Flatpak, unlike the earlier store attempts, works on essentially all Linux distros. This makes it much more interesting. Why Flatpak instead of its chief rival, Snaps? They explained, quote, Flathub is a vendor-neutral service for Linux application developers to build and publish their applications directly to their end users. A healthy application ecosystem is essential for the success of the open-source software desktop so end-users can trust and control their data and development platforms on the device in front of them. Canonical Ubuntu and Snap's parent company isn't the least bit fond of Flatpak, which originally sprang from Canonical rival Red Hat. Indeed, Canonical recently decided that neither Ubuntu nor its variants, such as Kubuntu, Lubuntu, and Ubuntu Studio, will support Flatpak. You'll still be able to add Flatpak to any of these distributions, you just won't have Flatpak built into the Ubuntu family, as we just discussed. 
On the other hand, Flatpak Store supporters state, quote, our largest competitor in the Linux App Store space is Canonical Snap Store, which aside from any debates as to the relative technical merits of Flatpaks versus Snaps, sits under the control of one corporate entity rather than a community-controlled nonprofit, requiring copyright assignments for contributions to both Snap and the store, and effectively making it very hard or unappealing to run your own stores. Alas, where would desktop Linux be without fusses over what software is the one true and right software? Probably a lot more successful than it is now. Either approach makes it easier for a software distributor not to not only bundle their programs for any customer, but to be able to sell them to people or businesses. Be that as it may, while the proposal for a paid flat hub app store remains just an idea, is still one that may garner support. If this plan can generate enough support and then the revenue to cover its costs, it may create the first popular universal Linux app store. Then who knows, maybe the Linux desktop will finally become broadly popular. Stranger things have happened. And I added a comment on here, why not just adopt Big Store from Big Linux? It already has all the packages, at least for Arch. They've got the uh, basic Arch repos, They've got uh, AUR, they've got Flatpak, they've got Snap, all built into the one store. Well, I don't know. So the factions are forming. On one oh side, my. you have Snap. On the other side, Flatpak. Everybody get your pitchforks. Don't worry, they'll destroy each other, and the only thing left will be App Image. Yeah. Well, Rudra's latest thing, uh, Blend OS... Uh, he was looking to develop a whole new app store just for that purpose. And I basically told him, you know, look, go look at Big Store. It's already done for you. Especially since Blend OS is Arch-based. Cool. Okay. Now that that topic's beat to death. Pound, pound. Right. <clears throat> Ubuntu devs working on new 140 MIB mini ISO installer. From OMG Ubuntu by Londoner. Megabyte. Mm. Ubuntu planned to release a new minimal ISO as part of the upcoming Ubuntu 2304 release. While there's nothing to download or test yet that I'm aware of, a good review of the project was shared on the Ubuntu de developer mailing list at the weekend. Interestingly, the effort is being headed up by Dan Bungert, the maintainer of Subiquity which is the tech underpinning Ubuntu's new Flutter-based installer. The Ubuntu Mini ISO is a small bootable ISO that can be either downloaded and used on CD-slash-USB drive, or even via UEFI HTTP that brings up a dynamic TUI menu of the Ubuntu images you want to download-slash-install to your target system. Canonical's Lucas Zemzak explains. It uses simple streams to select which images, so it'll be quite customizable regarding the selection. The difference is that it then downloads the ISO of interest into memory and chain boots into it, allowing the installation of any image as one would normally do. Sounds pretty interesting, right? Further posts say the mini ISO should be around 140 megabytes in size. Um, though it could even be smaller, the current bulk is dominated by use of the existing Ubuntu InitRD with a few things added on top. 
Notably, this ISO will be officially supported and tested, unlike previous Ubuntu Mini ISOs, which work differently too. There is also some discussion about whether the TUI, that's Terminal User Interface, if you're unfamiliar with it, that the user interacts with to select their desired image could also <clears throat> be used to list Ubuntu flavors, making the Mini ISO more versatile. Now, nothing about this is 100% concrete as of writing. If this marvelous sounding mini ISO doesn't manage to materialize in a few months, then please don't get miserly. That said, things do sound promising. I reckon this mini ISO could prove a massive highlight of the lunar release. So essentially, it's um, a network installer. Uh, you, you load it up, it's a minimal operating system, and then it allows you to connect out to the internet to other ISOs, pull in those ISOs, boot from said ISOs, and install. Cool. It's interesting. Take the next one. Is this microphone working? Yep. Okay. <laughs> not on my end, it's not. It's not. It is. You oh, sound like you went you. into another room, Bill. You hear that? I heard it. Well, I heard it, but it didn't sound like you were on the mic. When he was rubbing the microphone, it sure sounded like he was rubbing that microphone. Give it a tap. I, I didn't even hear that. A tap. Yeah. Cut, getting louder now. Yeah. Now try talking, Bill. You hear this? Nope. Uh, still kind of dim. I was testing to make sure that it audio. wasn't the audio. Oh, oh yeah, there we go. Audio. Oh yeah, that's straight that audio, microphone. Audio, audio, audio. Yes, we can freaking hear it. Out. Stop. <laughs> I got a new you're interface, it out kid, there, Bill. so it's. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to get this. <laughs> I'm deaf enough without your help. Yeah. Sorry. Okay, you're on the Mesa, Bill. Okay. So, Mesa 23.0 release: new features for open source drivers from Pharonix. After a lengthy re uh, release cycle due to blocker bugs and delays in issuing new release candidates, Mesa 23.0 was released overnight as the newest version of this collection of open-source graphics drivers used on Linux and other platforms. With the last of the blocker bugs cleared, Mesa 23.0 has now been released. After a longer-than-average RC cycle, I'd like to announce the release of Mesa 23.0.0, the first stable release of 2023. You may put away the party streamers. Not actually too much has changed since release candidate 5, but we have cleared out the last of the blocking issues and have a stable release. Mesa 23.0 brings more improvements for the Radeon RX 7900 series, the uh, RDNA3 graphics and RADV and Radeon SL Vulcan mesh shaders being enabled by default for RDNA2 GPUs on RAD5 or RADV when using recent kernel versions. RADV ray tracing optimizations continued Intel Arc Graphics DG2 slash Alchemist, Alchemist improvements. Initial Nouveau 3D support for the NVIDIA GeForce RTX 30 Amper GPUs continued improvements to the Zinc OpenGL on Vulkan driver and many other changes throughout the Mesa stack that 
have built up over the past quarter. Yeah, the 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 graphic story has been greatly improving, which I'm happy about. And I mean, nothing I, to see here. Move along. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I I've been getting better and better performance gaming on my uh not uh, my laptop that I've got upstairs. Now, it's got an older generation Nvidia card, but uh it's actually handling things a lot better than it than it ever has in the past and we're going to get to the point where everything's going to be pretty much on parity with Windows or what well, good enough anyway, usable. Okay. Mozilla says most Android apps have misleading privacy labels. My turn to trip on my tongue, guys. Uh, From Ars Technica, it looks like trusting developers who just tell the truth about data collection on Google Play isn't working out. Just like on iOS, Android launched app privacy nutrition labels in the Play Store last year, with the idea being that users could quickly get a look at how much data each app collects. The obvious problem with this system is that the developers fill out the data collection forms and there's nothing to stop them from lying or omitting certain data collection policies. It's no surprise then that when Mozilla recently audited the top apps on Google Play, it found that, quote, most top apps, end quote, have, quote, false or misleading, end quote, app privacy labels. Mozilla said it surveyed 40 of the Play Store's most popular apps by global downloads and found that, quote, in nearly 80% of the apps we reviewed, we found some discrepancies between the app's privacy policies and the information they reported on Google's data safety form, end quote. Each app received a grade of poor, needs improvement, or okay, with 16 out of 40 apps getting the lowest rating. Mozilla did not need to dig very deep to find flaws, saying that many apps' privacy labels openly contradict their public privacy policies. Snapchat, TikTok, and Twitter all claim, quote, no data shared with third parties, end quote, on the Play Store, but detail third-party sharing and their privacy policies. For free apps, the list of recipients earning a poor grade isn't very surprising. Facebook, Facebook Messenger, Facebook Lite, Snapchat, Twitter, and the one surprise, Samsung Push Services. A lot of paid games like Minecraft make the poor list, too. Da-dum. That sucks. Da-dum. It's not surprising, but... <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> Do we have a visitor? Welcome, welcome to Midcast, oh. Alisa. <laughs> welcome to Hi, YouTube. Lisa. Your face is all over YouTube now. <laughs> okay. Fedora considers dropping Delta RPMs. And this is from Ferronix. For many years now, there has been Delta RPM support built into Fedora to allow just downloading the binary difference between the currently installed RPM package and the updated version. While this made sense during the days of limited internet connectivity slash bandwidth, Delta RPMs haven't proven useful in years, and now Fedora Linux is considering removing the support. Delta RPMs made sense a long time ago when internet connections were much slower and more common for users to be on a metered connection. But in more recent years, the concept hasn't proven useful. Plus those with more common internet speeds these days and modern hardware likely would find it takes longer to reconstruct a complete RPM from a Delta RPM than it would be to just... Did you blank, Joe? No, I didn't blank. The part I was reading jumped three pages. Ah. Uh, 
than it would be to just download the entire fresh RPM package for the updated software. Okay, and I'm back. I've noticed we you put your cursor on part of this, on, like in the paragraph somewhere, it holds it there a little bit better. Uh, okay. <sighs> Where was it? Fedora Project. The leader. value. The value? Where? I'm still not there. The, the, the value of DRPMs these days appears minimal while carrying infrastructure slash hosting costs. And got, got another paragraph. Fedora project leader Matthew Miller raised the proposal this week around dropping Delta RPMs. In addition to the limited direct benefits these days given newer technologies around OS tree and container deltas, he is of the camp that it's time to give Delta RPMs a sad, fond farewell. Well, not a Fedora user. I, I, I can understand that the, the amount of development required for it isn't worth it anymore, but I'm sure that there are still people on minimal connections that would appreciate the ability to just have the difference loaded. They should switch to endless OS. Yeah, I mean, these are things you take into consideration when you're choosing the distribution you're going to use. You know, I don't know. Hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll read the next one, too. Go I'm right interested ahead. in this one. Uh, Linux officially supports Apple Silicon. This is from OMG Linux and Ars Technica. Linux now officially supports Apple Silicon. Sort of. See, the latest Linux 6.2 kernel release is the first version to ship with a hefty chunk of mainline support for devices powered by the Apple M1 Pro, M1 Max, and M1 Ultra chips. Mainline Interrupt, Joe. Go ahead. Interrupt is that all this article is from OMG Linux. The Arts Testing is linked in the in the show notes, and it's a different viewpoint on this situation. We did not include both articles. Right. Mainline is an important qualifier here, as it's been possible to run custom Linux kernel builds on Apple Silicon for a while, thanks in large part to the efforts of Asahi Linux Project. But though this is a notable first step, Linux Apple Silicon support remains a work in progress. Not Silicon. Silicon is a different substance. Okay. Not all devices using M-series chips are supported by Linux 6.2, and a sizable set of core features lack anything but rudimentary support, or in some cases, like speakers and touchpads, absolutely no support at all. Yet this... Formative arrival in mainline Linux is a significant milestone for Linux on Apple Silicon. Silicon. Cone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my coffee cup straw silicone. is silicon. <laughs> my, my computer chips are silicon. I, I there is no this. such thing as Silicon Valley. So we found another one, Joe. <laughs> that Linux is able to run it all on Apple's newfangled hardware is testament to the kernel's adaptability and to the ingenuity and talent of Linux developers and the Asahi Linux project. After all, Apple doesn't directly support, document, or provide drivers to let alternative operating systems run on its hardware. All of this effort is after the fact. When the kernel carries support directly, users won't technically need to use Asahi Linux to run Linux on M1 computers in the future. However, the <clears throat> reality isn't quite so simple. Not yet. For the moment, using an Asahi Linux build remains the only way to get a practical, usable Linux experience on Apple Silicon. 
but these improvements are being upstreamed and will in time benefit all Linux distros. Plus, with growing support from app makers for Linux on ARM in general, and hints that some major Linux distributions are prepping Apple Silicon builds, the viability of Linux on major devices are on these devices is only set to improve over the coming year. Silicon. No, you had it right last time. Aye. Silicon. <laughs> As I said, my coffee cup straw is silicone. Yeah, that, that's making me My computer excited. chips are not flexible. <laughs> you wouldn't do so well on uh, Jupiter Broadcasting, would you? With all the, the Oh, I'm, there, I'm there, sure there, I, there's I multiple know. Reason, there, there's multiple reasons him and Joe don't get along. Oh. I'm just going to leave it right there. Well, no, that's, well, no he wasn't that's... talking Joe. He was talking Chris. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> they go out of their way to mispronounce things. Uh, I used yeah. to think it was... Uh, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, there is no such place as Silicon Valley. That's, that uh, If there were, it would be where they make all the breast implants. It's someplace out in California, I'm pretty sure. Uh, that's Silicon Valley. No, no, no. Not that part of California. <laughs> so you're saying down by Hollywood to keep mm. the starlets in, in... Yeah, it's right next to the Hollywood sign. <laughs> All right, moving on. Only Office adds yes. integration <laughs> with ChatGPT and Zoom. Oh, thank God, more ChatGPT. Uh, uh, and it's FOSS.com. The race to integrate artificial intelligence has begun. The faster services and programs enhance their tools with AI, it is going to get more attention. ChatGPT, the chatbot by OpenAI, is one such software. Almost everyone, including Microsoft, for its new AI-powered Bing search is betting big on it. Now only Office has added new a new ChatGPT plugin to help quickly answer your questions, find information, generate text, and add some code to your document. In addition, they also introduce a plugin that makes it easy to access Zoom which is a video conferencing platform uh, from within its office suite. See the article for more depth, which is uh, linked. Yeah, that article rambled on and on and on, but that was the main part of it. Oh, my gosh. I, I think people should probably just hold off. Yeah, now you can use ChatGPT from inside OpenOffice to make up totally uh, unsupportable <laughs> conclusions. and. <laughs> I tell you you're being selfish and you should apologize. And... <laughs> Let's keep going. Yeah. Hardware acceleration coming to QT-based Falcon from OMG Linux. Uh, it's Users Falcon. Users of the Falcon web browser will soon be able to take advantage Falcon. of hardware acceleration when using the browser on Linux. A dev commit adds an option to enable this long-requested capability of the Qt-based WebKit browser. The option will be available in the next stable release of the browser, but it won't be turned on by default. Users have to explicitly turn it on to benefit. Why? Though hardware acceleration in Falcon works well for me and for a few others using it, it's not considered 100% robust enough for, for a wider rollout, not yet. But with it, the feature a mere checkbox away, there will be wider testing and, hopefully, further contributions to improve it. Better still, the feature works on both X11 and Wayland. Anyone going to correct my pronunciation on the Wayland? It's Wayland. 
<laughs> Enabling hardware acceleration allows the browser to make use of a system's graphics hardware, which in many cases results in video content, games, and animations that perform more smoothly than when powered by the CPU alone. That's a kapoo. Uh, <laughs> Popular with Linux users as KDE Plasma Edition, Falcon is a cross-platform web browser available also on Microsoft Windows. The app uses the Qt web engine for rendering with a Qt5-based GUI on top. The Falcon Flathub page states, quote, Falcon has all standard fun functions you expect from a web browser, end quote, including bookmarks, history, tabs, and a built-in adblock plugin. Longtime Linux users may remember the app used to be called Cupzilla, but changed its name in 2017. That's Cupzilla with a Q. I think they got tired of being included in Q. I used to use it when it was Cupzilla or the QT browser or whatever it called itself at the time. It's just a, another Chromium-based thing. That was fun. Mm, it was great. Please <laughs> let there be more silicon. Uh, <laughs> silicone in these articles. Uh, okay. Uh, all right, Joe. Take us out. Oh, there's one more. One more. FFmpeg 6.0 released from Pharonix. FFmpeg 6.0 shipped February 28th with hardware acceleration improvements, threading enhancements, new encoders, decoders, and a range of other additions for this widely used multimedia project. FFmpeg 6.0 is the project's annual major release as outlined in the FOSDEM presentation from a few weeks ago. Among the FFmpeg 6.0 changes are... Radiance HDR image support. FFmpeg now runs every muxer in a separate thread and requires threading to be enabled for compilation. VA API encoding and decoding support for 10-12-bit, 422, 10-12-bit, 444, HEVC, and VP9 support. Wireless application protocol bitmap, WBMP, image format support, NVIDIA NVENCAV1 encoding support, Intel 1VPL support for quick sync video, QSV. There is also QSV encoding decoding for 1012-bit 422, 1012-bit 444, HEVC and VP9, media codec encoder and decoder support, WAV ARC decoder and DMUXer, Crystal HD decoders have been deprecated. Other new encoders, decoders, filters, and demuxers, RISC-V optimizations, FFmpeg 6.0 can be downloaded at ffmpeg.org. For those of you without a theater background, take us out means do the last bit so we can move on. That's right, because we should all have a theater background. Absolutely. Every single one of us. Yeah. No, I, it can't be overstated how important FFmpeg is. Um Oh yeah, just practice. If it, if if it's audio based, it uses FFmpeg yeah. somewhere. It's the it's the back end for almost everything out there, including all the a lot of your expensive consumer products are using FFmpeg on the back end because it it keeps up well with all the new technologies and and uh, it's good to hear more good news from that project. That was a fun one to read, though. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad it was you. <laughs> right? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Yeah, pretty much. All right, let's move on to the uh, security and privacy.
wants to take this first one in security and privacy. Take it away, Moss. Oh, okay. Thought it was your turn, Bill. Oh, Anyhow, LastPass devs get breached found to have unencrypted access. From devclass.com, LastPass has published more details about how its systems were compromised via an attack on a home computer used by one of its senior DevOps engineers, showing not only the extent of the attack, but also how developer machines can be exploited by malicious operators. According to the company's latest post, quote, the threat actor was able to leverage valid credentials stolen from a senior DevOps engineer to access a shared cloud storage environment. This was accomplished by targeting the DevOps engineer's home computer and exploiting a vulnerable third-party media software package, which enabled remote code execution capability and allowed the threat actor to implant keylogger malware. The threat actor was able to capture the employee's master password as it was entered after the employee authenticated with MFA and gain access to the DevOps engineer's LastPass corporate vault, end quote. The serious nature of the breach is underlined by the fact that this engineer was one of only, quote, four DevOps engineers who had access to the decryption keys needed to access the cloud storage device, end quote. Data exfiltrated included access and decryption keys for LastPass production backups stored on AWS S3, including, quote, customer and encrypted vault data, end quote. The attack on LastPass systems overall is complex and formed of multiple incidents. It began in August 2022 with a separate attack through a, quote, comp compromised developer account, end quote, according to CEO Karim Tuba, that lasted four days. Then in December, Tuba stated that this stolen information was used to obtain further data. It is this second attack that has now been described in more detail. What was the media software package, as reported on Ars Technica, it is claimed that it was Plex, which was itself compromised and user credentials stolen shortly after the LastPass attack, though whether the two are related is unknown. The DevOps perspective on this is that in both LastPass incidents, the point of entry was a compromised developer account. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this is not the first time LastPass has been breached. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. And to date, Bitwarden has never been breached. Imagine that. <laughs> Fully open source project that hires people to audit their code and perform uh, intrusion tests is the best option out there. Imagine that. Crazy. We are not sponsored by Bitwarden. We are not sponsored by them, but I Although... use it. <laughs> oh, here it comes. Oh, if you want to throw money at us, I ain't going to argue. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Certainly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Bill, take that one. Okay. NSA shares guidance on how to secure your home network. Ooh. And we all trust the NSA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Come, children. We have puppies and candy. Install uh, this software. It'll make your system more secure. Right. Oh, man. And this is from Bleeping Computer. The U.S. National Security Agency, or NSA, has issued guidance... I can't even do this with a straight face. Has issued guidance to help remote workers secure their home networks and defend their devices from attacks. The guide published by the Defense Department's intelligence agency on Wednesday includes a long list of recommendations, including a short list of highlights urging teleworkers to ensure their devices and software are up to date. Remote workers are also advised to back up their data regularly to prevent data loss and to disconnect equipment they're not using if it doesn't require an active internet connection at all times. 
to remove non-persistent malware if one of your devices gets infected. You should also reboot them frequently or schedule a restart to further minimize the risk. At a minimum, you should schedule weekly reboots of your routing device, smartphones, and computers. Regular reboots help the, to remove implants and ensure security, the NSA said. Other best practices include using a non-privileged user account on your computer, enabling automatic updates whenever possible, and covering webcams and disabling microphones when not using them to block eavesdropping attempts by via compromised devices or malware. Oh, my gosh. What great advice. Who would have ever thought my, of those things? My gosh, I'm going to, like, print this up and share it with all my friends. Yeah. Man, we... Yeah, the, the only pain point there for me would be rebooting my router every week. You know what? I've Blah. been thinking about that. I, I wish there was a way. I've got a Linksys router, and it's a good one, but it does not Oh, there have... is. It's well, automated. I'd like to, yeah, I would like to automate it, but I don't know how to do that with... Sure. I mean, I, I can. You, Joe will tell you. Yeah, you, you have to. You have to invite the uh, the NSA into your home, though. Okay. And, and get yeah. uh, an Amazon well. Alexa, and then just have it power cycle once a week. Well, my my router is currently named NSA Listening Post, <laughs> and that's how they know where to find you. <laughs> well, it sort of discourages people attaching to my router. <laughs> God, where was this article back when we did our our episode on security? Man, we could have used some of these, uh, right? Like, I mean, remove non-persistent malware if if one of your devices gets infected. I would have never thought. Um, Bill, your honestly, voice does not adequately have a sarcasm font. You should just like reformat once a week to make sure. You know. Oh God! All right, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make fun of these. And people. in case you can't hear the sarcasm in my voice, it, it, that's because it's not there. <laughs> Just for that, Joe, you get to do the next one. Okay. Hey, who's hosting this show anyhow? Um, I don't know. Some guy. The NSA. Iron Tiger <laughs> hackers create Linux version of their custom malware. This is from Bleeping Computer. The APT27 hacking group, a.k.a. Iron Tiger, has prepared a new Linux version of its sysupdate custom remote access malware, allowing the Chinese cyber espionage group to target more services used in the enterprise. According to a new report by Trend Micro, the hackers first tested the Linux version in July 2022. However, only in October 2022 did multiple payloads begin circulating in the wild. The new malware variant is written in C++ using the ASIO library. And its functionality is very similar to Iron Tiger's Windows version of SysUpdate. The threat actors' interest in expanding the targeting scope to system beyond Windows became evident last summer when Sequoia and Trend Micro reported seeing apt 27 targeting Linux and macOS systems using a new backdoor called RShell. More info in the article. And that's definitely one where you're going to want to go read because, yeah, this really didn't tell you much here other than hackers made a distro. Up next is the Bi-Weekly Wanderings. First up, me. 
Yay! Yay! I got the uh, WaveShare GamePi 20 working. I had a bit of fun with the, the soldering iron, that. getting it all set up. Uh, the pin header went on easy enough with a bit of flux and some patience. And then I had the uh, software, but I grabbed the software accidentally for the Pi Zero W2 um, when I was use when the device that I have is the Pi Zero W. Um, that took some figuring out because the device would turn on and connect to the network and the screen would turn on, uh, but it would not load emulation station. It was also fun trying to read everything on this extremely tiny screen. <laughs> so I ended up hooking it up to HDMI. And I was able to get it everything larger, but it was also very upside down. Um, still, I was able to get all the the updates done with um, an OTG cable and a USB keyboard. And it was fun, um, you know, after I finally got the correct version of the image on there, um, getting all the games loaded on over Wi-Fi. Um, it took a couple of days, actually. And I think if I ever do this again, I'm going to make sure to load up the SD card before I screw the whole thing up together. Um, it means imaging the SD card and then hooking it up, turning on the device and logging in that first time and expanding the file system fully using um, what the, the built-in Raspberry Pi, the system update thing. Um, <clears throat> and then um, pulling the micro SD card, putting it in my computer, Loading the games into the folders that are then create are that were previously created by turning it on, um, and then yeah, it just took so long to move those files on there. And then because of how the Wi-Fi works on your 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 Raspberry Pi zeros, um, <clears throat> it dropped some of the the files, and that was difficult. Um, I'm still working on getting MAME and uh, Neo Geo working properly. Um, Sega and Nintendo are working good. Um, I did have to remap the keys for Sega, and I also had to try a couple of different emulators, but it was fun finally getting my favorite games working well. Um, I have not played it as much as I would want, but I am taking another forced vacation this upcoming week, and... Um, I, I know that I am very much bordering on, on, on work burnout, or maybe I'm well past it, and I, I don't know. Um, but I have had my resume professionally redone. Uh, I posted it on a couple of sites and started getting calls almost immediately. It, it's something I've done before, you know, getting my resume professionally redone. Um, and the investment lasts a while. Um, <clears throat> wow, it jumped again. That that is really annoying. Uh, the investment lasts uh, a good while. Um, I mean, I used the last one for seven, eight years and just updating it on occasion. Um, <clears throat> it, it, I don't like the job hunting process, but I do like some of the opening offers I have been quoted for, for jobs these days. I'm talking like 30% more than I'm currently making. Um, in the same area, in, in this same area that I live in. So I will get something eventually. Um, the rising cost of living is definitely pricing me out of my current job. Um, I also refurbished my 3D printer enclosure that was built from a lac table. 
um, and some plexiglass. I, I redid all the seals around the edges with, with fresh silicone. Um, I drilled a new hole in the top for the filament um, that would cause less pressure because the ender is side fill instead of um, direct drive the way the my old one was. And I filled in the old hole with silicone. And I also filled a couple of the larger holes that were in the wood that had just developed for various things, hitting it and things like that. Now, the previous printer that was in there had a very large control unit. It's the uh, Monoprice Maker Select V2, if you're curious. Um, and it was hardwired to the device, so I ended up having to cut a large hole in the back in order to slide it through, so there's a big giant hole in the plexiglass. Um, I had previously tried to reattach the plastic, but that did not work as well as I would have liked. So what I ended up doing was uh, 3D designing and printing a top piece and a bottom piece and a sliding center piece where I can control the size of the hole and easily run cables through um, without issues and it will minimize draft. Um, I also put a neodymium magnet on the front and screwed in a washer so that it would close easily and latch and be able to pop back open. Um, then, you know, after all that work, um, I, I had already taken the, the old printer out. I was time to put the new printer in, and then I found out that the enclosure was too short by about three inches. Um, it really sucks that I put all that work into it without checking the height first. I'm, I'm going to have to get some two by fours or something and either raise the bottom or raise the top to provide the room that I need to be able to, to fit the device in there. And, and that'll be interesting figuring out how I'm going to do that and then reseal everything and, and have it still be sturdy. Um, <clears throat> uh, moving on from that, I also iteratively designed and printed a small foot pedal adapter for my USB switcher. Um, it only took a few tries and I really liked the final results. Um, it's a very simple lever design, and it is the simplest solution that makes it very easy for me to quickly switch the mouse and keyboard between devices. It's similar to a KVM switch, but it's just for USB devices. Um, <clears throat> granted, now I want to do the same for my HDMI switcher that I have. Um, no, I do not want an actual KVM switch. Um, because sometimes I want the display to stay on, but then be controlling the other computer. Now, I think that I have talked about my Gazelle workout machine before. It's not my favorite way of getting in cardio, but it works well enough for a steady state. It folds down fairly flat, and it's actually really cheap to replace. I can get another one for like 25 bucks or something happens to this one. Um, I think I mentioned previously that I had created a way to mount my phone on one of the sides, which allows me to control uh, my computer using KDE. Um, I also recently designed and replaced one of the end plugs on the other side for uh, the top of the frame. Um, and I also designed and printed a variation of one of the modular desk mounts um, that holds a cup holder. So I can like slide a cup holder in and out of it and then take it off of it when I fold the thing up so that it's not in the way and use that cup holder somewhere else. Um, now I can have a, a water bottle or an energy drink right next to me, and it actually allows me to have uh, longer workout sessions without issues. So um, quite a bit of design has been going on the last couple of weeks, and, and most of the prints have come out really well. Matter of fact, right before the show, um, I designed another uh, mount 
to go on the side of my chair because I, I don't like the microphone over here. I'm going to move it back over here, but I don't like the mount that I currently have here. So I'm, I'm making a new one right now to move this over here and attach it to the side of the chair instead of having it in the um, uh, table holder on this side. And it's currently on the 3D printer printing. Moss, what have you been up to? Well, I spent the past two weeks fighting with my new Moto G Stylus 5G 2022 phone. Apparently, there are some interesting glitches, which there shouldn't be in a pretty vanilla Android 12. Sometimes the screen I'm trying to work with goes to quarter size and the screen freezes. On Amazon.com, I can scroll halfway down a page and then the phone freezes, but if I wait sufficiently long, it catches up and resumes. This can take as long as two or three minutes. It seems to be ironing itself out over time. Maybe there's a break-in period or something. On the plus side, I'm using Google Apps again, and on the minus side, I'm using Google again. Overall, I'm happy with the phone. The glitches are occurring less often, and it is a significant upgrade to my Pixel 3a XL, except in the speakers. It has a single speaker that's not as good as either of the two speakers on the Pixel 3a. The Distro Hoppers Digest team had agreed to review BlendOS as a team, but we had to scrap that idea as the system is just too new to be relied upon. I'm hoping Rudra gets things worked on and more ready. I should have known better than to commit to review a distro whose life could be measured in single-digit weeks. I have been using Chess Time on Android for a few weeks. I started strong, but have had a string of defeats which should not have happened. I was enticed into using this app by listener Clayton. And uh, while I had a really good record against him, he's beaten me the last two games. Grr. <laughs> I wanted to bring up that Bodhi developer Robert Wiley has been having serious health issues, which has been delaying the overdue release of Bodhi 7. His medical bills are beyond what he can afford, being a common bricklayer. Uh, he doesn't really have much of a medical plan. There is a crowdfunding page for those who wish to support him, but he will get the money faster if you just PayPal it to him. I have both those links in the show notes. The team is doing what it can, but at this time, Robert is the only team member who can make ISOs, and that puts us way behind. Bill? Well, not much to report this week. week is, uh, work has been keeping me busy for the most part. I am happy to say our new show, Linux OTC, seems to be doing well. Um, go go check that out at linuxotc.org. And there's all kinds of links on that page to uh, take you wherever you need to go. We are getting a decent amount of feedback on the website and the Discord server, which which is to say an appropriate amount for uh, well of interaction given how long we've been recording. Uh, currently, we have four episodes available, with number four being a series or the beginning of a series on self-hosting we think it'll be a series we got started talking about it and it became evident that maybe uh maybe it'd be something that we need to continue on for a while um yeah so uh, when we began streaming episode 406 i was irritated to find my uh okay moving on i when i was writing this i didn't uh start it right um I don't think anybody noticed, but on the last episode of uh, Mintcast, um, I noticed that my lighting wasn't working, and it was irritating given that we were doing an, a uh, 
uh, interview which uh, with a very important person. Uh, I was running two thin rectangular lights that perched above my middle monitor, really like on each side of my webcam up there. Um, they were made by a company named Human Centrix. The lights worked satisfactory for my use case right up until they didn't. So I ended up uh, streaming that episode with no proper lighting, and that probably mattered to nobody except me. Um, this week, I've received the replacement in the form of two much larger rectangular lights made by a company called Neewer, N-E-E-W-E-R, which makes Very a lot good of, company. Yeah, I've got a bunch of stuff made by them, all these um, scissor arms that I use for everything. In fact, they're, they're mounted on scissor arms. Um, and I, so far, I'm really happy with them. Um they came on two telescoping tripods, which uh, I ended up replacing because I've just got too much stuff on this desk, um, and it was it was really kind of a pain to create the space they needed. So I went ahead and ordered two more of those uh, scissor arms, the same as this one I'm using for my microphone, and they just bolt, they clamp onto the edge of the desk on the other side, and it frees up all the space, um, and I feel like I'm getting a better picture because of it. I don't know. Again, it probably only matters to people like me. Time will tell um, how long they last because I barely got a year out of those human-centric ones. Um, one thing that's different about these is that they each have to be plugged in separately and they each have separate controls. Um, I don't know if that'll make a difference in, in how long they last or not, but it... It means that if I need to, for one reason or the other, I can change the lighting on one side to compensate for whatever I got going on. Um, uh, so you have a light side and a dark side. Yes, we have yet to see my dark side. So, yeah, again, time will tell. Um, and like I said... Luke, it, I am your light bar. <laughs> And, you know, and I wasn't real impressed with the time that lasted, given the given the fact that I'm only down here on the weekends. And of that time, I, I'm only using them for maybe three or f three or four hours on the weekend tops. Um, so also, I got a new audio interface yesterday. I've been using the X2 E22 for the last year. And overall, I was happy with the performance. The but the unit had a nasty habit of uh, shorting out whenever it got bumped. Um, it had a uh, USB B connection on the back of it uh, to connect to the computer, and whenever I would move the device, and that cable would get kind of um, touched a little bit, it would short out. It just had a bad connection, which you know probably kind of a deal breaker. Um, I replaced the interface with the uh, Focusrite Scarlet Solo, which seems to be, from uh, as far as I can tell anyway, probably the industry standard. Um, and this unit runs on a USB-C, um, which seems to be kind of the, the way forward in the future. Uh, as with most things, the official support is on Windows, and there is a lot of support for Windows. It comes with a lot of free software, and you get 
you can be part of this portal where you get free plugins for the software all the time. You get Ableton Lite for free and all that kind of stuff, you know. But it is a USB class compliant device. Complete with free Windows malware? Yeah, for real. Um, I wasn't really, I mean, I knew that anything I bought would probably be officially supported on Windows, and then Linux would be kind of like a secondary thing, but they don't even, they don't do any uh, commercial support for Linux at all. They, their attitude is basically, don't don't come at us with that, which, you know, we're all used to that, aren't we? I don't think I'm going to see any problems with this, though. My, my son, uh, who makes the theme music for my other two shows, he uses a uh, larger, more expensive model of these, and he's been using it for years and never had a single problem with it. Uh, right now, the only thing that's kind of irritating me, um, every now and then I have a use case where I need to uh, play a video and uh, pipe it through Video Ninja. And uh, with the old device, with the other device, I was able to just hit a button in the back and it would route all of the desktop sound back into the microphone feed, which would send it through Video Ninja. This device does not seem to have that functionality, so I'm going to work on another solution for that, I suppose. Um, but other than that, it seems like it, it seems like it works pretty good. Anyway, that's all I've got. Okay, that means we're moving on to the Linux innards. Um, and today we're talking about Android applications that we can't live without. No, that we really like. Okay, uh, for up first is me. And we're trying something a little bit different in the innard section. And it's because I put things in here first and kind of set the tone for it. And instead of, you know, having everything extremely scripted, I wanted to try a little bit more um, loose. So... Everybody has heard me talk about, you know, one of my favorite applications right now, Audio Bookshelf. I'm still using it every day. I use it to listen to all my audiobooks. I use it to um, listen to my uh, podcasts, everything. Um, ebooks, I, I use it for that every day. <clears throat> um, it also allows me to not have to store um anything directly on my phone so if i want to use a completely different phone like the uh the nord n200 which um doesn't have the best processor and doesn't have a lot of internal storage the way the note 10 plus does but has a really great refresh rate and a really incredible looking screen i can um the only th problem that I have had is like a uh, day before yesterday, we had those storms come through and the power went out, which means that I did not have access to any of my books, podcasts, or anything like that. Now I can do what I used to do and download things directly to the phone, but I was trying to avoid that. So it's something for me to keep in mind going forward that um, that is an issue. And so if the internet goes out or something, then I, I, I lose access to that type of thing. So um, I'll have to think of some type of backup solution, maybe set up something at a friend's house with a mirror 
but I'll figure that out eventually. Now, everybody's also heard me talk about Resilio Sync. Um, I do still use Resilio Sync, but I do not use it as often as I used to to like transfer books around or anything like that. But if there's something that I quickly need to be put on my phone, um, I don't want to be constantly like hooking up USB and disconnecting USB. I'll just um, use Resilio Sync real quick and the stuff will appear on my phone. It's quick. It's easy. I like using it. Um, <clears throat> now, I also regularly use OpenVPN. If I leave the house, if I'm on any Wi-Fi other than my own, um, I use OpenVPN. And I have tried setting up some automation with that, with like um, if this, then that, or Tasker, and things like that. It's okay, I guess, in some circumstances, but um, it actually works better with uh, like like PIA's Connect application. Um, <clears throat> but um, for a lot of my home automation, I use my next application, which is the Alexa app. So um, yes, I, I do use you know Alexa every day. And so the application does make it uh, really simple to set everything up and it kind of is the control center on my phone for everything in my house and the various automations that get set for that. And um, I'm like, if I go to bed after my wife is already asleep and she left the light on for me, I don't want to start speaking and wake her up. So I will open up my phone app and turn off the lights with the touch of a button on my phone. Um, I also regularly use the calendar app, uh, the Google calendar app. Um, <clears throat> basically if I have an appointment, it goes in there. If I need to remember birthdays, it goes in there. Anything important that's coming up, I try to make sure that it makes it in there so that I don't miss it. The only thing that I'll really change is when I'm notified. I mean, if it's something on the computer, then I only need a 15 minute notification. If it's something that I'm supposed to drive to, then I will try and set up a 24 hour prior notice so that I remember to, you know, drive wherever it is that I'm supposed to go. Um, another thing that I make sure is on my phone and that I use on, on a regular basis, I talked about it earlier in my bi-weekly, is KDE Connect. Um, uh, might sound odd, but um, it really makes it nice to have my phone be able to control my computer. Like when I'm on either the exercise bike or the gazelle or anything like that, or if I'm over lifting weights and I don't want to walk all the way back to um, my mouse and keyboard, then I will be able to just um, use KDE Connect. Uh, because it's always set up, uh, I will have to make sure that my VPN is turned off because it doesn't work with the VPN, and then I'll be able to control everything. Um, <clears throat> I do use also what um, Google Voice on a regular basis, but um, oh, and I use that for a secondary text messaging app that I can use directly from my computer. I also use that for phone calls when I don't want to use my regular number and anything. It's a lot easier to use that on the computer than it is to use my next choice, which um, I, I tend to have on Android devices and set up across multiple devices because it works better on Android than it does on a desktop. And that's Digits, which is an application from T-Mobile, which allows you to use your phone number on multiple Android devices. And you can use it on computers, but it signs you out after like 
20 minutes and it's it's really annoying to have set up to receive phone calls it just doesn't work out that well um i also have youtube set up which of course i use on a regular basis on my phone for music and things like that um <clears throat> discord whatsapp uh telegram um there are several other communication apps that are set up on my phone that I use with a regular a regularity, including like Messenger, which um, I really only use to talk to my wife while I'm at work or while she's upstairs and I'm downstairs. Um, Authy um, for two-factor authentication, I use that quite often. Um, if you can set up two-factor authentication on everything on anything, then set it up. Uh, I mean, it's not perfect but it's better than nothing um, i'm also a big fan of standard notes which i use on my phone all the time for things like taking notes uh, tracking calories uh, things like that um, <clears throat> now i also use uh, mumla which is a uh, mumble client um, I use that on my phone to um, a lot of times if I'm if I'm cooking and I'm going to be on um, tilts uh, the Linux thing tech show I, I will use either mumla or plumble because the standard Android mumble app is terrible um, Now there is um, a voice aloud app that I use also for uh, reading books and it's called at voice and I, I, it works really well. You can change the accent, uh, change the voice that's used, uh, change the speed that it's reading at. It's a great app. I highly recommend it. It was recommended to me by uh, one of the people on the Linux Lugcast. I also regularly use the calculator application. Um, I also use DroidCam. Um, <clears throat> DroidCam is a good one. It allows you to... We've, we've talked about it on the show quite a bit. It allows you to use your phone as a webcam on your computer. Um, uh, don't know if you can hook it up wired that way, but I know it works over Wi-Fi really well. Um, I also always have Easy Tether installed, although I have had issues with it recently in, in recent years where um, T-Mobile is still able to detect that you're using Easy Tether. And so it will slow you down to um, tethering speeds. Now it is still really good if I'm like connected to a Wi-Fi network and I want to be running the VPN on my phone and don't want to set it up for what whichever device that I'm connecting it to. So with that setup, um, I'm able to just use Easy Tether and have it hooked to my device and then have the VPN from the phone control the IP address and where all the data is going. And I've already, um, I also regularly use Nextcloud on my uh, device, specifically for notes for this show. So if I'm at work and I just want to take or update something real quick in my bi-weekly or in, you know, any of the notes that I'm taking for specifically Mintcast, then I can just do that real quick, you know, Bluetooth keyboard, start typing on it, and um, because I'm not allowed to have my own computer there. Um, <clears throat> now, I've already mentioned Tasker and IFTTT. Uh, if this, then that. Um, I, I use both with some regularity to set up some automations. Um, I do sometimes just 
completely shut them off and and then come back and try and rebuild everything um, because I don't like how things have turned out. But it is something interesting to do, especially with um, once you start mixing like Alexa with IFTTT and um, websites to be able to turn things off and on. And then NFT or yeah, near NFC tags. So um, near field communication tags, and then you just set your phone on something and it makes something happen. Um, I also regularly use Samsung health app. And mostly that's because it integrates extremely well with the um, Samsung watch that I have. And I use that to track my steps for the day, my overall activity, my bike rides, anything like that. And then like right now um, on my Nord, I'm using Oct4a, which is Octoprint on an Android device. And I know I've mentioned that on the show. And I also use um, the Ring app to, you know, interact with my front door and my camera out back. And I can even talk to the camera that's out back or the Ring doorbell. And yeah, it is something that I, I, I need to have on my phone and that also integrates with Alexa. And then just the last thing I have on there is one I've already mentioned, which is Facebook Messenger. And that's really it for me. Other than, you know, the, the same thing everybody else is probably going to mention when it comes to, to banking apps and things like that. Now, you mentioned that you use OpenVPN. Have you ever tried the uh, WireGuard app? Um, yeah. Um, not to, like, my home PC, but uh, mm. PIA comes with one built in because I also regularly use the PIA VPN app and that I can set to, to wire guard with the click of a button. And I've done that. And I think it's still set up that way. Cool. Well, um, yeah, as, as Joe said, um, the first thing I'll mention, just get out of the way is the bank and credit union apps. And then the apps that go along with my utilities and things. Um, now, this list is not going to be exhaustive because it's just I use a huge number of apps to manage so many things. You know, obviously, somebody that's that does his uh, life Monday through Friday on the road. Um, somebody like me likes to have tools to manage everything right there from my mobile device. But these are some of the more interesting ones, I think. Um for starters, and I think it's probably going to be the first thing I would install if I was to get a new phone, and that would be Bitwarden. Now, again, they're not paying us, but they are by far the best password manager out there. Um, open source. I get it from F-Droid, um, and uh, they it's their interface is really good, understandable, intuitive. Anyway, I won't go on anymore about that. Okay, so um, I use Nextcloud not only for the show, but I've done away with all of the backing up to Google for the most part and have replaced that with Nextcloud um, so as to try to remove a lot of my personal, as much of my personal life as possible from from the Google infrastructure. And it's, you know, it's uh, it's almost not realistic to assume that you'd figure out how to do that completely. Um, but for the most part, I've, I've done well with, uh, removing the Google photos and the, um, 
Google Docs and all that. And Nextcloud has been, for my part anyway, it's been a perfectly good uh, replacement for that. Um, I get that app from F-Droid and it, and it stays fairly up to date. Um, now, if you're going to uh, sync your calendar and your contacts with your Nextcloud account, you need this device or this uh, application called DAVX5. What that does is it syncs your Android calendar and your Android contacts with the contacts and the calendar on Nextcloud. Um, I actually pay for that app, and I, I'm not sure if it's open source or not, but I have to get that from Google Play. Um, you know, it is what it is. Um, I'm hoping that they incorporate that natively into the next cloud app in some at some point in the future, but right now, you've got to have that. Now, you can do a daily backup of your calendar and your uh, contacts with the... Uh, Nextcloud app, but if you want to actually sync phone to account, then you need you need a separate app for that. Um, and then I've got F-Droid listed here uh, because basically what I'll do if I'm looking for an app, I'm I'm gonna try F-Droid first just to see if there's a version I can get on there, or if there is a solution on there that's open source that's usable. And if there is, I'll try that first before I go with anything that's on the Google Play Store, just because I want to I want to support those open source projects that you well, hear about on that. No, I agree with you in, in principle on that. But um, F Droid tends to also have, you know, um, pirated APKs on there. So like um, Listen Audiobook Player is one that I will specifically mention that you can get on F Droid that um is a paid app or the you get the paid version on there but the the paid app is on the play store so mm. that's interesting um given the fact that i use F-Droid, um i don't use the play store version of firefox uh i will use the F-Droid version of firefox which is a project called fennec and I don't know what they do to Firefox, what they what they remove from it to make it uh, satisfactory for the F-Droid store. But uh, it, it basically is Firefox, and I get it from F-Droid, and they call it Fennec. Um, and then there's a uh, keyboard that I get from F-Droid called Florisboard. And it looks and behaves very similar to... Um, the the Gboard from Google, except it doesn't have the uh, voice typing built right into it. It will if you use the voice typing, what it'll do is use the uh, Samsung voice typing, um, which is kind of hit or miss. Uh, a lot of times, if I'm on the road, I'm using a lot of voice typing to communicate with people, and I need that to work as good as I can. Bill, yeah, I, I have your answer on Fennec. Oh, okay. Uh, Firefox uses Google proprietary services for notifications. Fennec removes this functionality. There might yeah. be a few other proprietary bits. Uh, also, Fennec is just the name, the code name for Firefox for Android used by Mozilla itself. Oh, there you have it, kids. 
I have not noticed any, because I was using Firefox from the Play Store for a long time, and I've not noticed any functional difference. It it behaves and works just as well uh, to the point where I've just not even noticed, and I've, and I've gotten on with it just fine. But again, Florisboard, um, I try to use that on the weekends as much as, as I can because it, it works perfectly well as a keyboard, and anybody that's used to Gboard could get on just fine with with this uh, GPL F-Droid uh, keyboard. Um, I got the eSurance app. That's not very interesting. I get that from the Play Store. It's, it's where I get my car insurance from. Um, okay, so now I've got Jellyfin on the on the phone which is necessary for me on the road because basically i handle all of my tv i've got a tv in my truck and when you've got a samsung device uh, the flagship devices come with this service called dex well i think you might have to install it but it's basically allows you to just hook up a cable directly from the USB-C on the phone to the hdmi on a tv and you've got a well, essentially a desktop computer right there. You could use it that way, but I use it for point-click, play my next uh, Netflix, and uh, my Jellyfin works just fine that way. Um, connects to my server back home because it's my Jellyfin server is uh, internet-facing. Um, also, I I do have the Netflix, the Hulu, the Prime, HBO Max, Paramount Plus and likely others that I can't think of right now. Um, that way I can I can watch anything I want while I'm on the road. I use K9 Mail. Now I use <laughs> K9 Mail is one of four email apps that I use to manage all of the email for all of my personal email as well as uh stuff relating to the shows and this that and the other. K9 is right now the precursor to what's to the best of my understanding is going to be the uh Thunderbird project for Android. But right now that's being called K9 Mail. I get that from uh Fdroid and it's a perfect perfectly good, perfectly usable email client for uh Android. And I also use the Samsung email for the email that I get for the shows. I keep things siloed off this way. That way I I don't have nine email addresses going to one client and things get mixed up, you know. At least I can silo it off to my personal email goes here and the show email goes here, you know. That being said, I've also got the uh Proton Mail, because I do have a personal Proton Mail account and then uh one of my shows uses Proton Mail instead of uh instead of Gmail. Um, and then I've got Tootinota. I've got a personal Tootinota account. That's the one that I pay for. Um, and it's it's pretty good. It's all right. I mean, it, it it's point-to-point encrypted, just like Proton is. I wanted to support the project, so I do have an account on there. Um, I use the Kroger app. Kroger is a chain of grocery stores around my area i think they're i think they're somewhat nationwide i don't know if you've got them down there in texas do you joe yeah most areas that don't have kroger's have another chain that kroger owns yeah um they got an app where you can do your shopping and it's pretty good it 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 
keeps up with the inventory pretty well. And then you can set up pickup times and all that. And for times that I just cannot be bothered with going to the store. Um, uh, to further that point, I've got an app called Shipped. Shipped, S-H-I-P-T, is a service where if you can't even be bothered to go to the store to pick up your groceries, somebody will bring them to you, just like Uber Eats or, or uh, DoorDash or something like that. These people actually go to the grocery store and do your grocery shopping for you, and it costs 10 bucks. And I can tell you there's been a lot of times that's where that's been... Price. That's not bad at all. I mean, you you know, you'll tip them. You'll tip the driver, you know, beyond that. But honestly, I'd have to can, tip them like 20 bucks considering how many groceries I normally have oh, to get. Oh, yeah. Big time. Um, or you can you can get a yearly plan where it's like it's like uh, 50 bucks, I think. No, no, no. It's an it's 99.99 for an entire year, which if you use the service every week like we did like we did the year before last, you do the math, 52 weeks, you know, that, that can add up quite a bit. And but yeah, I mean, the, the service is great. They go to the store and then they text you, hey, I'm such and such. I'm at the store getting your order now. Let me know if there's anything. And you've got, it sets you up with a temporary number that you can connect to them directly with. And if they're, the store is out of something, they'll text to you. Uh, hey, they, they're out of this thing, but they've got this. Would you rather have that? You know, it's it's... It's actually pretty good. Um, so I use it when I'm, I mean, because sometimes, you know, when you live on the road all week and you get home, finally, you ain't trying to go anywhere. And it's a good option. Okay, so a lot of the truck stops that I go to, they all offer their individual rewards programs for fueling. And there's things that you can manage to do, do, get more room. Do they all sell broccoli? Who? All the different uh, truck stops. I know where you're going with this. And oh, oh, we'll get there in a minute. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually they do. If you want to spend $5 for a cup of broccoli about like this, availability is not the problem when it comes to healthy food it's the that's always it's the, the price you in it i mean it it is but it i mean it is available Unless you can walk into a walmart and you get a giant bag of broccoli for like a dollar yeah that's true and then a microwave and that's the one thing i don't have yet in the truck i could get that but i haven't i haven't put my mind to it um but the truck stops they all have their own app for like managing well sometimes they you have to pay to park um and so when you get there you can use the app to sign in and then pay for a parking spot depending on where you're at if you're on the east coast you're gonna pay to park because it's just a money grab um but yeah i've got i've got one for the loves the pilots and the uh, tas so i use mozilla vpn not to be, it runs on WireGuard, but let's not confuse that with the VPN that I would use to connect back to my home network. That, that'll that be a separate thing. Which means you use Moldad VPN, you just pay Mozilla. I'm using, I'm using Mozilla's managed uh, VPN service. And the reason I choose Mozilla is it's, you know, if <laughs> they're like the only truly open source browser 
project left and if i have to choose where to send my money that's where i'm going to send it and it's been it's been good i don't use it a lot on the phone because i really don't have anything going on on the phone that i want to keep that private and i just don't there's too many ways to hide other technologies in a mobile device to capture all the things you're doing anyway so i mean i got it on there if i need to use it um well, if you needed a private phone call, you could just use Signal for that, assuming the yep. person you're calling has it. Yep, yep. You got which I do have Signal. Um, that's down further down the list. I do use that right now. The only person I've got on the list is uh, Moss. If I need to say something to Moss, I'll just use Signal. Um, so you know yeah, how was, private our conversations are. Right, we have private things to say, and that's all I'll say about that. Gross. Um. Uh. So Parkview, so the big uh, mega hospital chain down up up here in my part, in my neck of the world is uh, Parkview, and uh, they've got an app called MyChart, and it's actually pretty exhaustive. It's pretty good. It uh, allows you to keep keep up with all of your lab work and your uh, prescriptions, and you schedule your appointments with it, and it. You know, it integrates with your calendar and all that. You know, it's pretty good. So uh, it's not open source, obviously, but I use it. Okay, so back on the open source train, NewPipe. If you are not using NewPipe to look at your YouTube videos, you are holding it wrong, and you need to check yourself. NewPipe is the uh, NewPipe is the open source alternative to the uh, YouTube app stripped of all of the annoyances that the official YouTube app has. However, if if your motivation for looking at videos on YouTube is to support the creator, then NewPipe is not going to uh, get the job done. Um, well, if, it allows if YouTube didn't like get so annoying with their ads, yeah. I wouldn't be so adamant about blocking them. Right. Not just the, I mean, just every time you open it, trying to get you to get back on YouTube premium and all that. And I, I think I used to have YouTube premium, but I got so sick of them on when I'd get on a device where I'm not signed in trying to sell me YouTube premium. And so I just stopped using it altogether. But new pipe, I actually do not get new pipe from F droid or the, uh, Google play. I actually get that directly from, uh, I actually get that directly from GitHub. I download that, and it's got its own update mechanism to get from uh, GitHub. And now that I re now that I mentioned that, I remember that I also get Floresboard directly from GitHub as well. Now, um, does um, NewPipe allow you to log into your like Google account? There is no mechanism for logging into anything with NewPipe. Okay. The advantage of using NewPipe is. For people mostly that want to listen to the music, like you want to play something and then you want to let the screen go black, you're not able you're not able to do that with a non-premium YouTube account. Well, uh, NewPipe gives you that ability. Well, it also has the download ability built right into it. Right. Um, so I, I for that I used YouTube Vanced, which is um, which got somewhat deprecated. It's still there. It's still getting updates but you're no longer able to log in with it, which is 
the difference that I'm looking for right now to be able to access my uh, my playlists, the ones that I set up yeah. instead of just, you know, the YouTube algorithm playlists. Right. So, and you have you have this concept with New Pipe of uh, subscribing to channels, but you're not subscribing on a server. Basically, what you're doing is you're adding that channel to your New Pipe playlist which is just on the device so when new shows come out it'll go on the device there's no and there is some uh like and dislike functionality there i'm not sure how that's handled on the youtube side if it's just anonymized because there's there's no signing in whatsoever so if you subscribe to something on new pipe it's not going to show up on your google account as subscribed so that is something to keep in mind um, I use Mastodon. I've, I won't say that I've switched to it from Twitter, but I do have it. And, um, my Linux OTC has got a Mastodon account and our shows get, uh, shared on that account automatically through a, uh, Word, WordPress plugin. I like it. It's, it's good. Um, back to my TV, I use an app called Philo. Philo is an alternative to something like Sling or uh, oh, YouTube TV or Hulu TV where you get you get a layout kind of like uh, DirecTV where you've got all the cable channels and all that. Philo is the cheapest option out there at $25 a month. It is less than half the monthly price of YouTube TV or Hulu, which are both going for uh, $55 and $60 respectively. And that's, uh, yeah, Philo is by far cheaper and just as many channels, I think, as the other two. So, and you've got DVR capability and on demand. So, I mean, it's great. The only difference is you won't find it on smart TVs, which, in my opinion, uh, are pretty crap technology anyway. Um, like I said, I got Proton Mail, Tutanota Mail signal. Uh, for my SMS, I use QK SMS, which is uh, derived from F-Droid, which is uh, an open source SMS app for uh, managing all those messages. I like it because it's got built-in functionality to automatically delete text messages that are older than a certain date or older than a certain spe specified period of time that you put into the settings. And when I installed it last week, because I tried something else for a while, for about a year, and I installed it, and it asked how long should we keep messages, and I said 90 days. It said, okay, well, you need to delete uh, 17,000 messages then. So, and I'm not exaggerating. So your your SMS messages will pile up especially people here in the states you know we've we kind of we've held on to that broken old technology and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere samsara driver that is my e-log app uh motor carriers are required to use e-logs uh to manage our driver duty status we're allowed to drive 11 hours a day and then we need 10 hours of off duty uh in between there in between that and the next period of driving that's the absolute simplified version of that steam steam's got an app for android that basically 
gives you like access to the store where if you hear about a game you want, you can get on there and you can buy it and add it to your library. You can't play the games from this app, but it's it's for doing that kind of thing with. Uh, Termux. Termux is a tool I use when I'm, let's say the guys are having a problem with the next cloud server and I need to run a uh, pseudo apt update and pseudo apt full upgrade. I need to wire guard back into my home network and run those two commands. And I, all I've got on me is my phone. Well, I can do that with Termux. It gives you, it gives you a terminal, a working terminal and a, it's got BusyBox installed in the background, which gives you a full Unix tool set. Um, cat weigh my truck. If you ever go to a truck stop, you'll see these cat scales on the inside. And that's because the amount of weight that we haul is tightly regulated by Department of Transportation. There's an app out there called Weigh My Truck that allows us to get on the scale. It uses GPS to find out where we're at, and then it'll display our weights right there on the phone so I don't have to go inside. And uh, that has made life a lot easier. Trucker Path, that is an app uh, I pay $18 a year for this service. It's basically got GPS and um, it's good because it's like integrated with the map and it gives you, I can find out like um, where the next truck stop is and how much parking is available because people are connected to it and they're, it's asking, you know, how many parking spaces are available and whatever. And it's pretty good for getting on, being on the road uh, WireGuard. I used to use OpenVPN to tunnel back to the home network. Um, I've switched to WireGuard after figuring that process out, and uh, I love the simplicity of WireGuard and how well it just works. And I've got uh, a project on the WireGuard server behind me called PyVPN, which just basically is a script that sets up all your, your uh, VPN services for you. Um, WordPress. WordPress allows me to keep up with what's going on on the websites. And if somebody, let's say somebody comments on something on one of these shows on the website, I get a notification on the phone which is helpful because it's been made clear to me that sometimes people make a comment on WordPress on your website, and if you do not immediately respond, well, they get angry. <laughs> so this is a this is a useful tool for keeping up with that. I've got Xbox Family. Um, that's just so that I can manage all of the kids' individual Xbox accounts. Uh, YouTube Studio, I use that sometimes if I need to, if there's something wrong with one of the, um, if I need to quickly edit something in like a show uh, description or something on one of the YouTube channels. Z-Archiver is uh, an Android archiving tool, kind of like File Roller or X-Archiver on the Linux desktop. AntennaPod is what I use to get all of my uh, 
all of my podcasts. I'm on a, I'm probably on AntennaPod more than any other app on my phone. Amazon Shopping, obviously. Um, Arch Wiki Viewer. I'm a, I'm a huge Arch Linux user on my laptops just because it, well, all the reasons that people use Arch. And if I want to see... If I want to look up something on the ArchWiki real quick, the, the ArchWiki viewer is actually a pretty good app for laying it out on your phone in a way that is that makes sense and is easily manageable. Um, there's also two packages or two two apps called Arch Packages and AUR Droid, and those are useful useful for looking up a certain package on Arch and seeing Either you can use it to find out exactly what Arch calls the package, because different distributions call packages by different names. But you can see if it's either in the Arch repositories or if it's in the AUR. Like Joe, I use, well, certainly to a lesser degree than Joe, I use uh, Audio Bookshelf. I've got an Audio Bookshelf server of my own running, and I connect to it, and Joe's been kind enough to share his audio bookshelf server with me as well in the app. I've heard people complain about the audio bookshelf app looking too old-fashioned because it's got this gooey that looks like uh, a wooden bookshelf or whatever, and I just, I, I just cannot form an opinion about things like that. So it it it's it's actually a pretty good app. Um classic phone ringtones. I've been using that since Android was invented because I do not like I think phones should have ringers. They should have bells that ring when you get a phone call like a phone should sound. I was brought up with a rotary phone and I need my I need my phone. I'm call me old fashioned, call me whatever you want, but I think a phone should sound like a phone when it rings. I I've never I've never been able to have just like a a jingle go off or a song well, or something like that. I am going to mention that you probably have a large group of the population that have never heard one of those old fashioned phones. That's you know an right. actual old fashioned phone. Yep. Probably. And well, if they were ever presented with a rotary phone, they would probably scratch mm -hmm. their head and <laughs> I have moved stuff. into the 21st century in my ringtones, but I write my own. I basically take a clip of something. I want my ringtone to sound like my phone's going off, not like my radio just came on. My, right. my, my yeah. wife has uh, taken to using doorbell sounds as her notification for like text messages and things drives me absolutely insane because I'm old enough to remember, you know, what a doorbell is supposed to sound like. And I think somebody's at the front door. Mine sounds like I, and I probably, this was probably just a Freudian thing where I went back and looked for something that reminded me of childhood, but it just sounds like the old phones from the 70s ringing with an actual bell on the inside and a mechanical process that moved the hammer against it. You know, that's that's what I've been using. I've been using that same ringtone since Android 1, however long ago that was. But that's the, the only thing the app does is it basically puts the MP3, whatever ringtone you choose, it puts that MP3 into a folder. You could, in theory, install the app, select the ringtone, it puts it in the folder, then you can uninstall the app if you wanted to, but I don't. Um, 
Disney Plus, I've got that. Uh, probably some of these got added to the list just because I thought of them later on as I was creating the list. Parent Square. Parent Square is an app that the schools around Fort Wayne use for the administrators and the teachers to communicate communicate directly with the parents and it's probably the most irritating app on my phone because it goes off many times a day because there's a few people in I've got one child in elementary school one child in middle school and one child in high school living here and uh each of those schools have have a separate administrator and they're all uploading whatever they think is interesting every day and this thing is going off constantly and you there's no way to like separate like I don't want I don't want uh notifications about this kind of content I just want notifications about that. It does not have that kind of functionality. Really? Your teachers aren't using 15 different applications? That's a plus uh, right there. Well, up until last year, or up up until this year, it was a uh, combination of Parent Square, and then some schools were using uh, Class Dojo, which is another one that's out there. And that was irritating, too. but, But having one application makes it no less irritating because it, they're they're just using it every time they think up something they want to share and it's oftentimes stuff that has nothing to do with your your kid whatsoever but there's no way to there's no aggregate way of separating what kind of things you want notified about and what things you don't and uh that's it for my again i'm sure there's things i'm forgetting because my my phone is i'm not going to say it's my life but when you're on the road uh, I don't know how. I mean, I, I got on 10 years in the beginning of my career without one, and I couldn't imagine now. Well, it's it's not to- just when you're on the road, because like, like I said, in the office, um, I, I can't have a personal computer. I, I could, no. I could like, you know, p- potentially bring in a tablet, but um, yeah, just anywhere where you're isolated <laughs> like that, it's really good to have... Um, yeah. You know, a, a phone and and you end up doing a lot with it that is absolutely correct anyway how about you moss well i'm going to start off my list with an almost analog app called swiss army knife some places you find it just called army knife for android it's very analog it has uh <clears throat> Flashlight, a unit converter, a timer, a stopwatch, a compass, a bubble level, a calculator, a magnifying glass, a mirror, and a ruler. And uh, some of these things you already have on your phone. The advantage of Army Knife is that uh, the combined app is about half the size of any app you could get for any one of those things. I do have the paid version of it, and I paid for it like eight years ago, and they haven't charged me again since. I mean, it's um, cool that it's all aggregated together. Well, I, I use the bubble level sometimes. Um, the mirror is useful after a fashion. Um, and the unit converter is really handy. So anyhow, it only cost me two ninety nine lifetime for for the pro version of the app. And most of those functions work in the free version. Um, I use Box. I don't use Dropbox. I don't use whatever else box they got. I use box.com. 
they don't have a Linux app, but they do have a, <clears throat> a browser app. How come when I start talking, my throat clogs up? Anyhow, and they do have a good Android app, and I basically keep the main household files uh, backed up between my computers, my various computers, and my wife's computer, and whatever I need on my phone. Um, Carfax keeps me in uh, in tune with what I need to be doing uh, on car maintenance. I've got some news apps, including CBC News. I love getting the news from Canada, where they don't have an opinion on what's going on in U.S. Uh, politics, except for when they want to laugh at it. <laughs> uh, I got started, as I mentioned in my uh, bi-weeklies, on Chess Time, which is a app to play chess against real people. There are no bots on this app. So you, you can expect... You can play the same person over and over again and learn where they tend to make their mistakes. Uh, <laughs> whereas you'll never get that out of a robot. <laughs> like YouTube, uh, not YouTube, but uh, Yahoo Play used to be or whatever it was. I don't know. I've got apps for college basketball, NFL, college football. Depending on what's in season, I keep the current app on my phone and then get rid of the others. And then when the season changes, I download them again. Um, we, we've talked a couple of note-taking apps. I like Color Note because I can basically prioritize my notes into what type of thing they are and use a different color code for that and group them by color and whatever. Um, we mentioned things like Discord and Telegram and Signal. Um, I use Ftroid occasionally. I also like that they have a version of Ftroid with a different GUI called Gdroid. It's got all the same apps on it, and it's got the same, you know, it's curated exactly the same. It's just a better interface. Um, fill up. I keep track of uh, how much gasoline usage I do on my cars. Um, keeps uh, keep us up on what our gas mileage is, whether we had a problem or something. Anyhow, it's just a useful little free app. Uh, fireplace. Yes, I, I sometimes need that white noise to go to sleep. And I have, uh, instead of having my computer running all the time with uh, YouTube running a fireplace thing, I just have fireplace app on my phone. Um, we talked about medical things. I have Helau, which lets me communicate with my nephrologist. And uh, if my doctor used it more, I, it would be useful for that. Um, I also have a healthy benefits app, which is how much money the government is giving me just because I'm an old person uh, on Medicare and TenCare. Uh, th this year, they started giving me $175 a month to spend mostly on food, but they also have other exceptions of things I could use it for. Um, you were talking about uh, various YouTube uh, sideways apps, like uh, Joe was talking uh, advanced uh, anyhow, I've got LibreTube, which has most of the same issues that the one that Bill uses has, except it's a different one. Uh, I'm stuck on Google Maps. I've tried other map apps. They just aren't the same. I'm sorry. I'll never be able to replace Google yeah. Maps. I'm sorry that Google tracks me. Yeah. I can I can manage to wipe the tracking after a certain period of time, but but yeah. Uh, 
You, it's the best map app out there. Honestly, that probably should have been on my list too because, yeah, if I'm going yeah, somewhere, I'm using it. I've got my MeWe app. There are some groups that are very active there. Most of them aren't. Our group is not active at all. <laughs> um, I've, I met, My phone came with Google News on it, and I figured, well, I check up on the news from time to time. The problem I have with Google News is it generally loads... Uh, the article from some places that are paywalled and I can't get around the paywall. I've got Nighthawk, which is an app for uh, checking up on my router. It's specific to the Netgear routers. Um, we haven't mentioned launchers. I use Nova Launcher. Uh, another text app I use is called Old School Text. And you really have to modify it before it really looks like an old school text app, but uh, it's easy to do that. Um, Cryptocurrency. I don't use real crypto, but I do mine Pi, uh, which is not a real coin yet. Uh, but they keep saying sometime this year it will become one. Uh, some predictions are that by the end of 2023, uh, it will be worth about $8 per Pi coin. And I currently have about 2,800 of them. So yeah, that I, will be I nice when I, that's real money. I, I don't trust predictions of any kind. I know, but it's one of those yeah. things to say, hey, if that really happens, I'll have money. <laughs> and it doesn't cost me anything to mine it. It's just something I have to log in once a day on my phone. Uh, there is a Pi browser that goes with it, which, which is just a variant of Firefox. Uh, but there are some things that it's easier to use on the Pi browser, especially regarding PyCoin. Um Pocketbook and Read Era are a couple of my ebook readers. I have different ones because I have different types of documents that I use. I, I think I use Pocketbook for my uh, user manuals for my cars, and I use Read Era for some of the books that I download uh, from obscure sources, such as uh, um, mm, what's my UK site that I use so much? Uh, Albion. Um, Anyhow, um, and it's, it's different things. I like to keep that separate from my Kindle stuff. Um, Podcast Addict is what I use. I also have something called X SXM, which is uh, since I have uh, Sirius XM on my radio on my car on one of the two cars, uh, I can also use the app on my phone, and for that matter, on Alexa. Everyone's Echo just went off. Yeah. Proton Calendar, Drive, Mail, and VPN. I don't pay for the VPN yet. I have the Drive Beta, which allows me some space. Uh, the free VPN I can use on the phone. I can't use it on my browser yet. They have just added a browser app for Proton VPN for Firefox, but it does not allow you to use the free uh, attachments. But I can use the free ones on my phone. QR and barcode reader, that's a fun one. Um, Robinhood, I do have a few investments and I've been cutting back on those. I've been finding it, uh, the market has been so fluctuatingly down that when something got over 100% of what I had invested in, I cash it out and put it in my savings account. <laughs> SmartFind, that's a work app for sub-teachers in this area. Um, Symbo talk. Autistic people sometimes are using symbols. I'm just learning about augmentive communications. 
And this was the app that was recommended to me to learn about that. Um, we talked about Mastodon. I use the Tusky app. The Mastodon official app is not nearly as good as Tusky. There are some other apps. I pay for the Washington Post, so I have their app. That's the only paper I pay for now. I used to pay for a local paper, but I wasn't getting anything much out of that. Um, I've got a weather app I'm thinking about paying for, but when I tried to sign up for the paid version uh, last night, they kept having some sort of errors, and I have emailed them about that. Uh, here's one you didn't mention, Wikipedia, the app that knows everything and is always right. That's because you can just use your browser. Yeah, I don't have that app. Yeah, I don't either. Well, it's nice because I don't have to open my browser to load Wikipedia. I just open the Wikipedia yeah. app. Anyhow, and the last one on my list is Zillow because we've been looking for a uh, home to buy or land to buy or something. Well, I'm getting more and more despondent about that. It seems like we're never going to get there. Uh, in fact, we just cashed out two-thirds of our down payment fund to do a major portion payoff on my wife's car. So we owe that much less current debt. Um, but I still look at the things. It's, it's, it's nice to be able to look. Heck, you can even look at places like in Puerto Rico or Philippines or you know wherever you want to go crazy. That's about it for me. I, I skipped over most of the standard ones because everyone else had mentioned them. Yeah, I kind of figured there was going to be a lot of repeats. Um, we sadly do have one, uh, vibrations from the ether that I did not copy over. Let me do that real quick. It's actually a kind of long one, Get but I don't think you need to, to, to read the Shame. whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I should have taken care of this. And this is from Zen Floater again. He, or Zen Floater 2, um, we had had some correspondence with him last time there's a trick i have joe which is to copy it into a text uh you know, like text message text reader yeah my text brain editor stopped. yeah text editor and then when you copy it over you don't have the bolding and the other stuff going on okay well we can fix that formatting here in a little while um <clears throat> <laughs> Now, uh, this is a rebuttal to his mention on Mincast Show 225-2023 System D comments. And he'll start off by recognizing the comments of Barbara Streisand, just to set the tone. And he did uh, post a Twitter link, and Barbara Streisand made the following statement. Trump's administration revoked an Obama-era regulation for updated brakes on trains. After the devastating train crash in Ohio, all Trump could do was to pass out his water and hats. <clears throat> I am personally neither hot nor cold on Donald J. Trump. Rather, I wanted to point out the fact that the average consumer of information typically doesn't know physics. Each car in that crane track train crash weighed about 155,000 pounds. <clears throat> we know now that an axle broke 
on a car, which caused that particular car to stop in just 150 feet of distance. Considering that each car weighed 155,000 pounds and they were moving at over 45 miles per hour, this combination of mass and speed added up to a tremendous amount of force. The new brakes they were proposing might have prevented the cars towards the rear of the train from derailing. However, even with the new brakes, there would be about seven cars which would have derailed anyway. It's because you can't stop a train, even with new brakes, in under a quarter of a mile. Civilians like Barbara Streisand truly don't know blank about anything. Now, that being said, this is me interjecting here. That being said, I, I agree with you completely on, on that whole portion of physics. Uh, but another issue that Streisand isn't mentioning here is that a lot of your uh, safety catches were being completely ignored. Your engineers were saying, hey, these maintenances need to be done more often, which is part of the reason that they were trying to, to strike in the first place. So there are other things in a, going on other than, you know, a 155,000 pound uh, train car trying to stop in a quarter of a mile, which, yeah, impossible. Well, there's also one other Safely. Thing. There's one other thing that they've been trying to change how the cars themselves are. Right. To be a better built car, so if it does derail, the newer cars that the, the company has been lobbying against would actually be able to take the role and not skew their contents. Right. Okay. Um, now, moving on from that, uh, system administrators are civilians as well, it seems, and don't understand that System D isn't as coherent or inclusive a system as they were all led to believe. When they first introduced System D as a solution to everyone's problems, they made it sound like you could use the same System D commands and expect the same services on any Linux OS and on any box you could find anywhere. Did this happen? Well, let's look at just one vendor and then he provides a link for that and then you can click on the instructions on the easy tether uh drivers for linux down below on rel or rel clone we see that simply installing the easy tether rpm file then plugging your phone into the computer will establish a link there is nothing to fuss on with rel to get easy tether to work correctly it just works out of the box for rel I clip a small section of their text and post it here for the rest of the Linux uh, distributions, all of which are system D and related references. Now, um, here I have done this several times and you do have to enable it for system CTL and start it for, for system CTL. And there is a lot of, uh, other things listed there on things that you might have to do for different system D based systems. Like it's slightly different for Magia than it is OpenSUSE and Ubuntu. So that is something to keep in mind. Now, these versions support USB hot plug almost out of the box. Just add the following line to your network interface. So you also have to make changes to network interface. And that's the end of the cl clip text. As you can see, Mobile Stream Networks has changed all their drivers over to System D compatibility. You can also see that System D has not been a homogenous single solution across the board for all Linuxes. They used to have simple drivers 10 years ago, which you could just launch by hand, then run DH client, tap Easy Tether, and it was up. But no longer. System D was proven to be more complicated to maintain and more difficult for users to implement than SysV was. And as we scroll down, we see they actually do provide a driver for FreeBSD, which runs similarly to the drivers they used to publish 10 years ago for Linux. Launch the driver as root by hand and run dhclient tap easy tether for FreeBSD. 
Systemd also promised to improve startup time on Linux distributions, which it's never achieved. I can get a laptop up quicker to a login prompt using Slackware or OpenBSD than I can with Ubuntu or Mint. And yeah, that is absolutely true. 100%. The writing is on the wall for Systemd. It was not a good idea, it was not homogenous, and it's not fast either. Systemd is just one more way they've managed to create a scripted pain in the ass to deal with. Excuse my language. But I will be fair. RHEL does work pretty good with Systemd, but RHEL is the only one which does. So we can either blame Systemd for being bad, or we can just chalk it up to the fact the British are no good with operating systems, i.e. Ubuntu and its variants. Charlie. Wow, well, thanks, Charlie. A lot to unpack here. And yes, we, we've always known that Systemd was never perfect, and that there always was a lot of pushback when Systemd first came out. But just like with um, GNOME 3, a lot of people just didn't care and pushed those changes through. Or like with adding snaps or cutting off flat packs or any of the other things that we've mentioned, all which a lot of that stems from Ubuntu. So yes, we are aware, but Systemd has been around for a while. And while it's not ubiquitous, it has worked. Mostly. And it solves the problem of developers needing to be able to write software that has to access service well has to have services running has to have things listening and what have you and if you've got to choose one thing that will work wherever system d is and i don't know it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing i think because yeah it uh, gnome literally depends on it or it it requires it i should say so I would also point out that several of the devices, maybe half to three quarters of them that systemd replaced uh, are no longer being maintained. Yeah. So we needed something that was that worked that developers could could write their tool chains and their and their services and lean it up against and it would and it would work at least satisfactorily everywhere. I've never had a problem with it on Arch. Now on Arch, um, you install a package and you have to enable the uh, associated services manually. That's just part of the workflow with Arch. If it's got, if it's got a system D service, you've got to uh, activate that and, and, well, enable it and then start it either by rebooting or, or typing start but yourself. The main thing we're trying to say here is none of us are trying to say that systemd is perfect or the only solution or the only solution that we'll ever, ever use. Because I do like MX Linux. I, I, I do use uh, Red Hat on occasion. And there are other solutions and we do use them. It's just systemd is one of the most prominent. Yep, and it's there. It's in most of your distributions that people use every day. I've had so many problems with so many other things. Uh, it happens much more often than it does with System D. I'm more likely to have problems with other things. So, yeah. Okay. If there's nothing else to add there. Nope. Thank you again, Charlie, for sending that in. We love reading your stuff on the show, and we will be happy to have any conversation with you that you want. Um, moving on to check this out.
And this is from Londoner. It's called Get Horizontal OSD for Brightness and Volume Changes on Linux Mint. Has anybody had a chance to read this? I looked at it briefly. It's it's an alternative, yeah. Well, tell me about it. Well, it's just basically re- replaces the the big square uh thing that pops up whenever you do do the uh brightness. Whenever you change the brightness on your on your screen instead of having that big square thing, you've got like a uh Okay, so oh, it's if longer. you find it, Linux Mint's on-screen display um, when changing volume and brightness, and this little is boxy, cinnamon, by the there's way. a neat extension that changes the look entirely. Yeah. And it's only available on Cinnamon. Yeah. It, it's just a, it just replaces the, the GUI element of the showing your... It, the, functionally, it's, it's all just cosmetic. But it is cool it that people, nice. um, yeah. If you want to check out the show notes, take a look at it, and you can install it using the Cinnamon Desktops extensions application. You just have to look for Horizontal OSD in the Downloads tab and hit the install icon. And you can change the the GUI, the control. You can change where it puts it on the screen. You can change the colors and all that. You've got you've got full control over this thing. I mean, if you if you change your, I suppose it's useful if you change the setting often enough. Mine's usually just set for all the way up; it <laughs> stays that way. Okay, and if we don't have anything else to add here, then it's time to move on to the housekeeping and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us an email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram or Discord. Or post directly at mintcast.org. Our next episode is 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, March 19th, 2023. And you can get that converted to your time zone in the show notes. Next Roundtable live stream, 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, March 11th, 2023. And you can get that converted to your time zone in the show notes. Uh, live stream information is at mintcast.org slash live stream. Moving on to the wrap up. I've been your host, Joe. And if you like the sound of my voice, you can catch me on a couple other podcasts. I'm on the Linux Links Tech Show, which can be found at tllts.org. Um, I'm also on the Linux Lugcast, which is the linuxlugcast.com. I'm on MeWe. You can send me um, an email directly, jb at mintcast.org, or buy me a coffee on Kofi. Link in the show notes. Moss? Well, they won't let me quit here, so I'm still here. Uh, I'm also on Full Circle Weekly News, Distro Hoppers Digest. My email is bardmoss at pm.me, and my other information can be found at itsmoss.com. I guess I should say I'm uh, at Zyvola at hosttux.social on Mastodon. Bill? Uh, you can email me, bill at mintcast.org. I'm bill underscore H on Discord. I'm at wchauser3 at fostodon.org, and that's on Mastodon. At wchauser3 on Twitter and at wchauser3 on Facebook as well. Uh, also, check out my other podcast, Linux OTC. and uh, three fat truckers. There's links to both of those shows in the show notes. 
Okay, before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mitcast possible. It's probably either going to be me or Bill doing the uh, audio editing for this show that we're recording right now. Uh, speaking of which... Probably you. Probably me. This time. <laughs> but it was Bill last time. Uh, speaking of which, we are looking for a new audio editor and more hosts if anybody is available or wants to join. We're not sure what happened to our previous audio editor. We would love for her to come back and let us know. Um, archive.org for hosting our audio files, Hobstar for our logo, and at RD for the animated Discord logo. Londoner for our time sinks. Bill Hauser for hosting the Pi 400, which runs our website, website maintenance, and the Nextcloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio. The Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Thanks Clam. Thanks, Clam. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music. And thanks for listening to this episode of the